um, a trip that requires lists of what to bring and what not to bring. And um, so several years ago, the, the movie theater here in town started selling advance tickets. Now, when I worked at the movie theater back in the Stone Age, um, we didn't do advanced tickets. There were tickets the, available the day of the show, and that's it. Well, now they sell advanced tickets, and sometimes it's like four, five, six weeks before the movie opens that you can go get a ticket for a certain day and time for a, a big opening or, a, or plans that you're making to be at the movies at a certain time. Well, anybody ever went and got those tickets and forgot to bring them the night of the show? I hope you haven't. I have not. I've come close because I usually keep them in my car in a secret place that I'll never tell y'all so that you don't steal my tickets. Um, and then what would happen is we'd go in a different car. And you know, my wife would be like, you got the tickets? I'm like, they're in my car. I better go get them. Uh, it'd be like showing up to Disney World and forgetting that you need your tickets to get in. But that thing... You know, the whole purpose of the trip. Now, yeah, you got to bring your toothbrush and your mouthwash and your deodorant, hopefully, especially if you're going to Disney. Um, but you got to have those things that are going to get you in, right? The, the main thing. And if you forget that, it's going to be a hassle. Well, today we're going to read a story that Jesus tells about the main thing. The main thing. And... Um, there's some, some surprising finds in this as, as I've studied through it, and I hope that you're excited to dig into it. If you would stand, we're going to read Matthew chapter 25, first time we've got to say that, verses 1 to 13. Believing wholeheartedly, these are the very words of God. Not just because Jesus spoke them, but because they're in the Holy Bible, the scriptures that reveal to us who God is and what he has said and shown about himself. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then... All those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Father, may we take to heart these sobering words. May we learn our lesson, learn it well, and may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. God, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we be wise. May we be ready. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Just a, just reading that, okay, so we, and this is an aside, this is not, this is bonus material, and you get it up front, okay. 
We've talked over the last several weeks about end times and eschatology and rapture, no rapture, Christ coming, two grinding at the mill, one's taken, one's left, and how that can and has been used to um, elicit fear in people. And as we read this parable today, it's a little scary, isn't it? I mean, maybe like, well, I don't know, I'm scared about it. It's a little scary to me. And this is one of those parables, one of those passages of Scripture that, man, I've just really struggled with all throughout the years. Literally, since I've been studying the Bible from, of course, I heard it when I was little growing up in church and like, oh, no. Oh, you know, what if I'm one of those people? What if I'm one of those virgins that, that, that show up and, Lord, you know, I don't know you? I've always had that worry. I've always had that fear. And I've always wondered, what in the world does this mean? And I've studied and I've prayed and I've read things. And I feel like um, today I've got a little bit better grasp on this than I ever have. And hopefully we all do when we leave here today. So, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So, after having been through all the details of the answers to the disciples' question or questions, depending on how you look at that in chapter 24, uh, Jesus started in what we looked at last week at the end of 24. He started giving examples and stories about his goal for the disciples in all of this. And what is his goal? What does he want for them and from them as a result of all this? He wants them to be ready. For his return. Whether that's sooner or later. And last week we saw two servants. One who was faithful. Actually says faithful and wise. And one who was wicked. That's the story that we looked at last week. The faithful servant was found by his master. To be doing what his master had left him in charge of. When the master left. And when the master returned and found that wise servant so doing, it says that he put that servant in charge of all the master's possessions. But the wicked slave, the wicked servant, reasoned in his own mind that the master is delayed and wouldn't be coming back anytime soon. So that servant, it said, began beating his fellow slaves and eating and drinking with drunkards. Well, the master returned at a time that he wasn't expecting... And he found the servant doing these things, and the master, quote, direct quote, cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's scary too, right? Anybody want to be cut in pieces and assigned a place with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, then you better, what? Be ready. Now, I've always heard that and received that as you better do right. You better be good or you might get cut in pieces. Okay? Be careful because we're going some here with that. Well, today we see in our second story a parable about ten virgins who are waiting for a bridegroom. Now, let me give you a little background of what this situation would have looked like in the first century. Obviously, it's a wedding setting, wedding setting, which is fun to say. Uh, weddings, as we've said in previous uh, messages before over a long period of time, weddings were incredibly big deals 
in first century Palestine. I mean, they were, we, you know, we've got Bridezilla and all these, uh, what is the Say Yes to the Dress shows and all this stuff. And that's about being showy. And it's about, you know, everybody plans the wedding and forgets about the marriage. But, but, but what happened in first century Palestine, it was a whole town event. I mean, it was a big deal. Like, usually seven days of feasting revolving around this wedding, and the whole town was there. I mean, the whole town, this was a big deal. So that's what we're looking at here. Uh, There were big deals. The fathers of the prospective husband and wife would negotiate a price to be paid for the bride, the bride price. Once that price was agreed upon and paid, then there would be a ceremony where the man and the woman, the soon-to-be bride and groom, groom and bride, would um, signify their intention to wed. And that was usually done... Did you see um, the nativity story? When they bring Joseph in and he's got a cup and he drinks from it and he offers the cup to Mary. And and it's really a beautiful picture. This is what they would do when they would be engaged, which would turn into betrothal. Okay, And so I drink of this cup. It's me, it's my life, and I'm offering it to you would you take part in my life with me? And when she would drink the cup, she was saying, yes, I'll take part in your life, which this is exactly what we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. The Lord reminds us, I've given you my life. Will you partake of it? And we drink the cup and we say, yes, I will. Uh, It's a beautiful picture. Um, And so they'd have that ceremony. And after that ceremony, they would be betrothed which is basically married, but they didn't come together yet to consummate the wedding, nor did they live together, what would happen is the groom would go away, and this is very biblical language, right? The groom would go away and prepare a place for the bride, and after he was finished preparing the place, then he would come back for her and take her to be with him, so that where I am, there you may be also." So all that stuff in John that Jesus is talking about is, is wedding language. Because Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you with me so that where I am, there you may be as well. I mean, that was their vernacular. That was the very breath they breathed. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying because it was wedding language. And that's what we're talking about here. So then after a period of it, it could be up to a year, um, the groom would come to get his bride, and there would be a procession from the bride's house to the groom's house to the wedding, and then the wedding feast, the consummation, and then the seven days of feasting that would follow after that. Um, So he'd show up and bring her to... And again, usually these are small towns. It's not like they're going from one end of New York City to the other or from New York to L.A. They're going, you know, Sophia. You know, maybe marching from one end of Sophia to the other from the groom's house or from the bride's house to the groom house. Um, so he'd show up and there would be this procession. And after he prepared the place, he'd come to pick her up and they would go to their new home. There would be a procession of the bridal party from one house to the other. And it usually happened at night because they would use these torches in the procession, and it was kind of part of the, the glory of it. It was beautiful. You saw the torches coming, and you knew that here comes the bridal party. Okay, and, and the bride is being marched to the groom's house. The bridegroom is rejoicing as he brings his wife, a soon-to-be wife, 
into uh, their new home. And the spectacle of it all was just wonderful to behold. And people just loved to celebrate weddings at that time. Now we're like, oh, i got to go to a wedding. <laughs> but like everybody was marching and they're singing and they're dancing and they're getting ready to party. So now, in today's parable, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So this stage is set with the background being a Jewish wedding procession, just like we just talked about. The virgins here are bridesmaids, basically. And the word reflects and means unmarried ladies who are attending to a soon-to-be bride. That's who the virgins are. They would go to the bride's house, and they'd wait with her for the groom to arrive, and then they would accompany the bride to the groom's house, like we just talked about. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven, and here, specifically his coming to finally establish that kingdom in its fullness, is like the build-up to this wedding procession. And that wedding party has ten virgins, ten ladies in it. Their job, these ten ladies, their job is to be ready for when the groom comes so that they can light their lamps. And just so you know, the word lamps here is literally torches. It's not these little things. It is a torch. Okay, The torch would long handle and it would have some kind of wire mesh or something up top that they'd wrap cloths around that had been soaked in oil and they'd light these jokers. And okay, So it's, it, don't think lamps, think torches. Okay? Uh, And they carry those lit torches to the wedding feast where the bride and the groom will be joined together and the celebration can commence. They knew about when the groom would come. And these bridesmaids' primary job beforehand, primary, was to have their torches ready. So these ten take their torches and they go out to await the groom's arrival. And as it turns out, these virgins divide into two neat groups. Verse 2. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. That's about right. (laughs) Uh, So thanks for making the math easy here, Jesus. He went like 4.2, you know. We have ten virgins... And Jesus says, five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now remember last week, two servants, two different camps. One was faithful and wise and one was wicked. Obviously the wise and faithful servant was the picture of what is desired from Jesus and the wicked servant was the example of what not to be, what he was warning his men to not be like. Now here, the foolish virgins are the examples of what not to be And the wise are the examples of what to be as his people waiting for his return. So let's look at these words before we move on. First is foolish. And we've looked at this word before. It's the Greek word moros, where we get our word moron. And the basic, simple definition is stupid. I mean, that's that's exactly what the word means. It means stupid. Not ignorant, mind you. Ignorant means somebody doesn't know something. Stupid means they do know it, but they don't use that knowledge. So, okay, you're sitting at Pizza Hut, and you get you got a big pan pizza. They're bringing it out, and it's sizzling. And you know that joker's hot. 
and they set it down, you get your slice out, and you take that first bite, and you know you should wait. But you don't wait because it tastes so good and it smells so good and it's sizzling and the little pepperonis have curled up and they got a little bit of grease in them and they're burning around the edges. And you're like, I want that now. And you take a big bite and what do you do? You lose four layers of skin on the roof of your mouth. Confession is good. That's stupid. Because you know it. You know it's going to happen. And somewhere in your brain, you don't process it. It happens every time. That's good enough. And then you're like, don't spit it out. You big, you're like, I don't do that. That's stupid. Okay? It's not ignorant. It's not, I do not know that this food is going to be hot. Therefore, I shall put it in my mouth. Oh, I have learned a lesson. It's not that at all. I know, and I don't heed what I know. That's what this word moros means. It's stupid. Stupid means they, knew, they know, but they don't use that knowledge. Right? That's stupid. And, and kids don't call people stupid. Okay? Preacher did. No, I'm just giving an explanation of how stupid I am sometimes. That's all I'm doing. And five of these virgins, waiting for the groom to arrive, are stupid, foolish morons. I didn't say it. Jesus did. Take it up with him. That's, that's not a good scene setter, is it? That's a, this scene is not going to be good for the morons. It's not going to be good. Now, we're not expecting much from these ladies, right? And that's Jesus' point, okay? He calls them moros, and they're like, oh, they're stupid. They're going to be the examples of what not to do, how not to be. Now, the other five virgins are said to be wise. Our servant last week was faithful and wise, and the word wise here is the same word we used last week, and it means intelligent, Prudent, tuck that word away, and mindful of one's interests. These virgins, these five wise virgins, are smart. They think ahead of time and are mindful of what they're supposed to be doing and they prepare for it and do it faithfully as a result of their preparation. Foolish and wise. That's the dichotomy here. Now let's see how it plays out. Verse 3. And he tells us why. For... When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And Jesus is saying they're foolish and they're wise because of this. So these torches, like I said that these ladies carried in these processions, were long sticks, strips of cloth wrapped around the ends. Those cloth strips would be dipped in oil. And from all I've seen, heard, and read in studying for this, those strips would usually burn for about 15 minutes or so before they went out, and then they needed re-soaked with oil. And then relit, then burned for another 15 minutes or so. And again, I don't know how long the procession was, but they needed to be ready. Their call is to be ready. Have their torches ready. Have enough oil to go the whole procession. So it would be normal practice to carry oil in a flask or something to re-soak the cloths so that the torches could be burnt the complete length of the processional. Well, when these five foolish ladies took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise virgins, on the other hand, took flasks of oil with them so that they could re-soak their cloths and thus should be able to burn their torches the whole time they need to. Now the question that needs to be asked 
I think is, do you think that all ten of them knew that they should take oil with them? Now remember, they're not ignorant. They're stupid. I think they knew. You got an eighth of a tank of gas and we're driving to Huntington. You should probably get gas before you go. Well, I can make it. I know my car. I know my car is usually a prelude to something bad happening, by the way. <laughs> Some of you, I know my car people are going, no, no, I know my car. You don't need some. <laughs> I think they all knew. And I think so because this is Jesus' very point in all of these stories. I'm telling you to be ready, whether it comes sooner or later. Whether you think you need oil or not, it's going to be best to have some oil just in case so that you're ready. These virgins did not know when the groom would come specifically, so they did not know how long their torches would have to burn. If the groom comes at noon, no torches would be needed at all. If he comes late afternoon, they may only need their torches for the last part of the trip after the sun went down. If he comes after sundown, well then they'll need their torches for the whole time, which would necessitate re-oiling their cloths. They'd know how long the trip would take, but not how much of that trip would require torch burning. It was, however, common practice for the groom to arrive at night. That's, and it's part of the torch processional. They just loved that. That was something that, that people liked to be a part of and see. So the procession with the torches being one of the beloved sights of the whole deal means, you know what, this is probably the main thing. I need to make sure I'm ready in case I need a lot of oil. Just in case. They all should have prepared to burn their torches for an extended period of time just in case. But these foolish virgins, these who are not ignorant, show their foolishness by not taking the necessary steps to do the very thing that it was their common sense duty to do. The main thing, have your torches ready. People love the torches. But no, these foolish virgins bring no oil. None. Well, when did the groom come? Verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. For whatever reason, the groom was delayed. We don't know why. We don't need to know why. It's not the point of the story. He comes later than any of the ten expected. And they all, all of them fall asleep. Now again... I've heard message after message after message about, oh, they fell asleep. Those worthless, drowsy virgins. Again, not Jesus' point. I don't see any reason to assign any fault or blame or shame to any of the ten for falling asleep. It's late. It's what happens. Jesus is not decrying them sleeping here. There are other places where he will say, stay awake. Not here. In his story, it just makes sense that they all became drowsy and slept. That's what people, wise and foolish, do when they get tired, they sleep. So don't get bogged down in them sleeping. Not important. It's just that it's late. Nothing to see here except that it's later than they expected, which Jesus has been clear about this whole time. It may be sooner, it may be later. So be ready either way. In this case, as opposed to last time, be ready if it's later. And later it is, verse 6. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Aha, finally. At midnight. Now, midnight, mind you. 
There's a cry. We're starting the wedding procession at midnight. The procession with the bridegroom uh, would announce his arrival with a shout, sometimes with music or a trumpet or whatever they had to get the people's attention. And basically they'd hear that far off. The bridegroom is coming. That would be the cue for the virgins to get ready because he's coming. And when he shows up, we need to have our torches ready so that we can walk with the procession. And at midnight there's a cry, here's the bridegroom come out to meet him. Now again, part of the thrill of all of this is that it really could be any time. It wasn't odd, from what I've seen and studied, if the bridegroom came at midnight. That happened. It really could be any time at all, and people would react the same. The party was about to begin. And there was excitement, joy, celebration with everybody joining in. And these virgins, these bridesmaids, were assigned the role of accompanying the bride, their friend, to the groom's house to partake of the wedding, the feast, and the ensuing party. Light the torches. Join the parade. March with your friend to her wedding. This is what we've been waiting for. And they were to be ready whenever the cry came and whatever form that cry took. And here in Jesus' story at midnight, the cry comes. Yay, let's get on with it. Verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So they're wrapping the cloth around the end of the torches. All ten virgins wake up at the cry. Nothing to see here. That's, they did that. All ten wake up. And they rise and it says they trimmed their lamps. They're wrapping those cloths around the ends of the torches. Getting ready to light them up. Time for the oil. Uh-oh. That's going to be a problem for some of them, isn't it? Verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, Hey, 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 hey. Give us some of your... Hey, hey, is my own addition. It's not in the original text. And the wise, foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. So they're lighting these cloths and they're not burning. And here's the crux of the problem. They're trimming their lamps, wrapping the cloths and all. And the foolish look over at the wise and they see them working with their oil. Oh, yeah, 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 that. Hey, uh, my cloth's not burning, and it's surely not going to stay burning if I can't get it burning. And, and I see that you've got oil there, so they say to the wise ones, Oh, hey, our torches won't burn. We need oil. You have oil. Give us some of your oil. It's go time. And the foolish five were stuck because they didn't execute during preparation time. Now is not the time to prepare in the story. Now is the time to do. Now is time to be about the business that you prepared for beforehand. And the foolish, listen, did not prepare. This is the major problem in this parable. It's trying to get ready when they should have already been ready already. Okay? Once it's time to be ready, there's no time to get ready. I wish we'd all been ready. Oh, no, that's... No, don't, don't do that. Um, but they ain't ready. And they appeal to those who are ready, who did get ready, and they expect those wise virgins to bail them out. Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. We need what you have. And we could have had it, but we didn't get it. 
So give us yours. Okay, it might work. But nah, verse 9. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The wise have their oil, and they've got enough for whom? Themselves. They did their job. They prepared for what they were supposed to prepare for. And they don't have enough for the other five. This is not them being selfish. It's them being prepared. They know how much oil they have, and they know how much oil they'll need, especially now that it's midnight, and this whole procession, we're going to need some oil for our torches. And they cannot make use of their preparation to help bail out the five who didn't prepare. Since there will not be enough for us and for you, these five wise ladies had enough for themselves, but only enough for themselves. This is not a story about compassion. This is not a story about self-sacrifice. So don't paint them as selfish or being mean. Not the point of the story. We only have enough for ourselves. In order for there to be a torch procession from this house to that house, we've got enough oil for us. Therefore, we've got to preserve our oil because we're going to need every bit of it to get there. And we made preparation for that. You did not. You didn't prepare. They would have expected the five foolish to have done the same as they did. So they didn't have enough for ten. They had enough for five. They would have expected there to be enough for ten if the other five had prepared the way that they should have prepared. They would have expected the plan to work if everybody prepared to do the work. But those foolish five didn't prepare, so the five wise ladies, virgins, have to deny them access to what is enough only for them. But the wise still have an idea. Go rather, they say, to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Go buy what you need. And you're like, it's midnight. They don't got torch oil at GoMart, right? Actually, they would have markets open because they knew the, the bridegroom was coming and people needed last-minute stuff. And if you want to make money in ancient Palestine, you sell stuff when people need stuff. So if they hear the cry of the bridegroom, guess what? People are going to start opening their shops up. Oh, they may, may need some last-minute articles here. Maybe, maybe I can sell something. So they get up and, and it would not have been odd for the market to be operating at midnight when they hear that the bridegroom's coming. Go buy what you need. They were wise enough to make things available, these merchants were, when a party was gathering. So this was a valid option. Go, say the wise virgins. Good. I think that's good, good thinking and good planning before that on the part of the merchants. So how does this work out? Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. So the foolish gals say, okay, okay, that makes sense. Now keep in mind they're not very smart. And they go to buy oil. And while they're gone, it would appear that they get to the market and they get some oil. And guess what happens? Well, the very thing that they were supposed to plan for and the very thing that they were waiting for happens. While they're gone... 
therefore meaning not ready, the bridegroom came. The cry had sounded forth that he was coming, and sure enough, he came. They didn't know how far off he was, but he's coming. He's coming. Well, we better get ready. He should have got ready before. While these five were off doing the prep work they should have done before they ever showed up to wait for the bridegroom to show up. Uh-oh. This probably isn't good for the foolish five, right? No. Well, we'll get back to them in a bit. But for now, it says that those who were ready, and note that word, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. The five who had the oil that they needed, whose torches could burn and illumine the way to the groom's house, they went in with the bride and groom and the rest of the party goers to the wedding feast. So it's a party, happy, joy, feast, good times, right? Yay. The whole town's there. And then note the end of that verse. And the door was shut. Well, now what's that mean? I mean, doors open and shut, right? No no big deal. Well... It means they shut the door and it indicates, no pun intended, closure. Everybody's in. We're good to go. Think no in the ark. God closed the door. Opportunity was gone for anybody else to get on. Here, same thought. Everybody's here. We're good to go. Let's proceed with the wedding. Let's get to it. And those inside would party. And anybody that wasn't there when the door was shut, verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open us. Five fools out here, we're ready to party. And here come our five foolish lasses, apparently having come across enough oil to fuel their torches for the trip to the groom's house. They got to be relieved to finally be there to join the party. It's been a long day. Going to be nice to kick up the old tired feet and laugh and eat and drink and party with the townsfolk. It's about time. So they get to the closed door and they holler, Hey, Lord, uh, uh, Lord, open to us. Lord, Lord, uh, open to us. And the repetitious use of the title Lord, 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 indicates intimacy. We saw that back when Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Anytime there's the repeated use of the name, it, it indicates intimacy. These ladies know the master of the house. They were well known to him too. So they appealed to their familiarity, I mean they just expected, and his benevolence to get into the party. Let me read that again. They appealed to their familiarity and to his benevolence to get into the party. It's just expected. It just makes sense to them. But remember, they're foolish. Knock, knock. Well, there's no who's there because this ain't no joke. Verse 12, stunning words. But he, the Lord, Lord, answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. But, there's that word, right? Party time, yay. Lord, Lord, open to us, but... And if you're these five foolish virgins, but is not the word you want to hear in this story if you're wanting in and yelling through this closed door, but. But he, the Lord of the house, answered, this is not going to be good, is it? Nope. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And that's bad. That's really bad, actually. The word here for know, K-N-O-W, 
would make an, uh, I mentioned a good word study word last couple of them actually. I'm going to mention another one today. This would make a great word study to study through your whole Bible. It's the Greek word oida, O-I-D-A. And it means to know experientially, to know fully. This is not just knowing facts about somebody, but experiencing who that person really is. It's intimate personal knowledge. And this word is used through all of the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament translation uh, in Greek is called the Septuagint. And in the Old Testament, when this word from the Hebrew is translated into Greek, it's this word oida. When Genesis says, Adam knew his wife and she conceived, it's oida. He knew her. He didn't just, hey, that's Eve. Oh, she's she conceived. Wow, that's not what happened. Birds do it, bees do it. Somebody can tell you about that later, okay? He knew her intimately, okay? Here, the Lord of the house, the Lord of the feast, says that he does not know these foolish five virgins. This does not mean that he doesn't know who they are. He knows them. He knows their names, and he knew that they had been bridesmaids, but he doesn't know them. In this time, in this situation, after the door was closed and there's no admittance for party business, he doesn't know them to admit them. They're no longer on the list. Watchman Nee gives an example of this in Sit, Walk, Stand when he tells a story of a man who was a judge whose son gets brought in and the judge asks his son to state his name. And the boy says, well, Dad, you know my name. And the judge says... I do not know you. State your name for the purpose of the court proceedings. That's the difference in the know here. The judge knew it was his son. He knew everything about him. But for the purpose here, he did not know him. The proceedings said, state your name for the court. Well, you know my name. I don't know your name. State your name. And that's the kind of knowing that we're talking about here. The Lord knows who these people are, but he doesn't recognize them as legitimate members of the party. So therefore, no admittance. You are not welcome here. I do not know you. Which means they can't come into the party. They missed their opportunity to participate when they failed to prepare for the procession. However many days ago that was, they were preparing and getting everything ready. They lost their ticket right there. They weren't ready when the groom came and the festivities began. They failed to plan, which cliche alert, is a plan to fail, right? They failed, and in this story, it cost them the whole deal. They didn't do what they were called to, and now they don't get to be a part of the rewards of fulfilling that role. They didn't prepare, they don't get to party. And that may seem a little cheeky, but it's the point here. It was their foolishness of not preparing beforehand that cost them their seat at the feast. I do not know you. And Jesus emphasizes, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so their story ends here. And so does ours, except for Jesus' final comment on it in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Now remember, Jesus' whole point in telling this story, because this is so important to interpret this story correctly. He is driving it home to his disciples that they are to make sure that they are ready for his return regardless of when it is. So he closes this illustration with a stern statement. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And listen to me, this is the sum total of what this parable is about. Watch means to give strict attention to something. We saw this same word, I think it was last week. And Jesus is repeating it to continue to make the plain thing the main thing and the main thing the plain thing. The disciples had asked Him when He was coming back to establish His kingdom. And His clear answer to when He's coming back is, Watch! Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. When are you coming back, Jesus? Watch! For you don't know the day or the hour. When? Watch! And again, he repeats that phrase about not knowing the day nor the hour for clear emphasis. And wrapping up this parable, which he told in order to make sure they are preparing for his coming, regardless of when it is, he re-reminds them of the importance of watching in the midst of their not knowing. When is Jesus coming back? Watch because you don't know. And Jesus is repeating himself ad nauseum to make sure that his disciples and we understand this point. They didn't know the day nor the hour. Neither do we. He commands them to watch. And so He commands us to watch. He tells them to prepare, so He's telling us to prepare. And so we turn our attention to application for today. Three P's. Application, three P's. Purpose, prudent, and prepare. Purpose, prudent, and prepare. That's a lot of P's. Purpose, purpose, prudent, prepare. First is purpose. And this is not as... Well, I guess it is application. Because this parable is a little tricky to interpret. Okay? If we let ourselves, and I have many, many, many times, we can get into a lot of trouble trying to parse out what this parable means. This is another tool in learning to interpret the Bible well. We talked last week about establishing context and that being key in all biblical interpretation. This is a good example of that concept. What do all the details of this parable mean? And let me tell you what, I could very easily stand up here and make this parable get down on all fours and make everything mean something specific and I could convince you from this parable that there's going to be a rapture of the church and that it's going to be a partial rapture. I could do that. And I could use this parable to do that. You may not be convinced, but I could say, see, what happened was Jesus came back. They were all virgins. They all knew where to get the oil. Some of them had it with them. Some of them knew where to get it. They were all invited to the feast. They were all friends of the bride and the groom. 
And five of them went when the bridegroom came and five didn't. That's not what this parable means. It's not the point. So we've got to be very careful that we establish the context, right? In this particular parable, the issue is not that the virgins went to sleep. We talked about that. Both the wise and the foolish did so. That details just a part of the narrative setting. So that's not an issue. We just read it as part of the story. The issue is that some were not watchful enough or prepared enough to have sufficient oil. So then what's the purpose of this parable? I've said it four times, I think, in the midst of what we have went through. The purpose of this parable is to tell the disciples to prepare for Jesus' coming, knowing that they don't know when that will be. Prepare to go sooner or later. Both and. That's the point. Not what happens if you get caught lacking and need to find a way to get ready after that. That's not the point. That's just an an illustration to show and, and amplify what the main point is. The point is to be ready. So when you're reading a passage and it's troublesome and you're trying to figure out what does this mean, again, establish the context and then ask yourself the question, here's the application, what's the purpose of this? Especially with parables. Okay? Because if we try to make every detail of every parable mean something specific, they're not going to make sense. Some of them, if Jesus tells you this means this, assign that meaning to it. We talked about that in Matthew 13 way back when. Here, what's his purpose? His purpose is, I want you guys to prepare now and be prepared for whether I come back sooner or later because you don't know the day nor the hour. Be wise virgins. And as an example of what not to do, here's some foolish virgins to show you what you shouldn't do. This parable is about Jesus coming back, but it's not an illustration of what the rapture will be like. It's not. And I've read it like that my whole life. And I'm wondering, am I foolish? Am I foolish? Am I foolish? Am I going to get locked out? Am I going to hear my God say, I don't know who you are. Get out of here. It's not the point. It's not the purpose. The purpose is be prepared. Bad things happen to people that aren't prepared. That's for sure. I would say the foolish are the same as the wicked last week. They're going to be cut in pieces and assigned a place with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the parable doesn't say that, and it's not the point. The purpose, find, 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 find the purpose. Prepare. Whether it's sooner or later. The purpose of the parable is to tell the disciples to prepare for Jesus' coming, knowing that they don't know when that will be. Prepare to go sooner or later. That's the point. The point is to be ready. So when you're reading and trying to figure out what some passages in the Scriptures mean, and it's not clear, the plain things are the main things. And the main things are the plain things. Major in majors. Don't major in minors. And let me tell you what, we will fight and scratch and claw and argue and divide over minor things. And we should not. Know what the purpose of the passage is and assign that meaning based on what you know the purpose is. 
And you're like, but isn't he talking about his return? He is talking about his return. He absolutely positively is. And he said, I want you to be ready. So that's first, purpose. Second is prudent. Now, the call in the parable today is for wisdom. And that wisdom in the parable is shown through forethought. Looking ahead, thinking through scenarios. And I can just see those five wise virgins going through their mental list. They didn't have a phone that they could check things off. Getting their stuff together and I can just see the mental dialogue as they reasoned out thinking, what if the groom comes later than we expect? Well, we'd better take some extra oil so that we have enough to last the whole time just in case we need it. And now here's the danger. Conversely, the foolish just didn't think about it. They're getting their stuff together. Oh, we're going to go to a feast. Yay, okay. Get our stuff together. Here's everything I need. Let's go. Listen, wisdom is shown in seeing things before you see them. One of my old mentors used to say, if you can't see it before you see it, you'll never see it. And yes, I did make fun of him both to his face and behind his back for saying stupid stuff like that. But it makes sense. It's true. And listen to me. What's that mean? We as followers of Jesus, we need to be diligent to think through different options and scenarios and be prepared for those things as best we can. If you are counting on Jesus to bail you out through a rapture, That's not the way we plan. Well, things might get tough. Well, thank God I won't be here for that. That's foolish thinking. I better take some extra oil just in case it does take longer. If you can't see it before you see it, you're never going to see it. Jesus told these same disciples back in Matthew 10 when he was sending them out on their own for the first time to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. Let's look at that verse. It's Matthew 10, 16. We're talking about being prudent here. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So in light of what we've seen today and the previous application point, What does this mean? What does this verse mean? You, Christian, you, disciple of Jesus Christ, are going to be in danger constantly. You are a sheep in the midst of wolves. And oh, woe is us. Things are so hard. And the world's gone so crazy. Oh, no. Oh, this is bad. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is prudence. You are going to be in danger constantly. So, listen to me Christian, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, work through what that means and be ready for it. What if there's a year-long pandemic? Oh, never thought about that one. Wasn't ready for that one. Be prudent. 
Be prepared. Don't go out and be surprised when it gets hard and stays hard. I think that's an awfully pertinent word for the church today. Be prudent. Think through the possibilities. Listen to me, church. The culture is not going to turn around. It's not going to happen. Newsflash, the government's not going to save us. Nor are they likely to even help us going forward. And we should not be surprised when these things materialize. Be prudent. See it before you see it. And the definition for that word watch that we talked about in our passage today, we also saw in previous messages, has, and I brought this up, I think it was last week, this phrase, take heed, to watch means to take heed, lest through remission and indolence some destructive calamity suddenly overtake one. That's what it means to watch. To take heed lest through remission and indolence some destructive calamity suddenly overtake one. Well, I wasn't ready for that. Sure wasn't expecting that. Wow, that caught me flat-footed. Wow, didn't see that coming. That should never be the reaction of the church to whatever comes our way. Because we're prudent. There's forethought involved. To which I say, yes, this, watch, take heed. Don't let remission or indolence lead to some destructive calamity suddenly overtaking you. Be prudent. Be proactive in your thinking about the possibilities because sooner or later, good or bad, easy or hard, best case or worst case, it could all happen. And if you get caught without your oil, that's your fault. You say, well, that's mean. Where's the grace in that? There's no grace here. Prepare. There's grace for preparation, but there's no grace shown if you're not prepared. And that's why we get caught in a panic when something bad happens out there. When an election doesn't go the way we think it should have went. Oh, oh no! Prudent. What's the purpose of the passage? Be prudent, church. And finally, that leads us to our last point, which is to prepare. How do we prepare for what we're talking about? Don't forget your ticket. The plain thing is the main thing. 4C, you can't foresee everything that's going to happen. I understand that. But you need to be ready for whatever may happen. They may shut this joint down. What are you going to do then? You're still going to be the church. You got preparation for that? What if they take our tax-exempt status? Oh, Lord. Then you don't claim that on your taxes. And I'm being a little cheeky. What are you doing to prepare for the possible worst? Or the possible best? 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. I want to read that in one other verse and then we'll be done. One passage and we'll be done. Watch this. 
You then, my child, we're talking about preparing. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer, all of those people prepare and prepare and prepare for what they're going to do. Having their minds and their bodies engaged in for what engaged in what's coming up. Did you see chariots of fire? Oh man. Drags in some places, but a great movie. One of the guys, not Eric Little, but I can't remember the other guy's name, but his whole life had revolved around winning the gold medal in the 100-yard dash in the Olympics. Yep. His whole life had revolved around that, and he got to the place where he was about to run the race, and he said, I'm afraid of winning it now. Why? Because he had nothing else to live for. We prepare by knowing that there's something better coming. And we train our minds and our bodies and our hearts and our lives and our families to look forward to that. And and, and we work hard at it in the power of the Spirit with the grace that is provided. Being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Like a good soldier. Like an athlete. Like a hard-working farmer. You know what I don't see in the Christian church much today? Diligence. We want everything handed to us. Give it to me. Feed me. Shovel it in my mouth. And we don't want to do the hard work of holy living, preparing ourselves for Christ's return. Prepare every day. And part of that preparedness is awareness. Titus 2, 11-14. Yes, I'm going to read it again. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. You want to talk about preparation? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's preparedness. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's preparedness. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's preparedness. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That's preparedness. Are you preparing and are you prepared for Jesus to come back? Are you doing the hard work Are you doing the physical work, the mental work, the emotional work, the spiritual work? And it's all grace, y'all. You said, well, you said there wasn't no grace for those who weren't ready. And there's not. Avail yourself to the grace that is there in abundance through the Word, through gathering together, through accountability, through these things that we just read about in Titus 2. That's being prepared and consistently preparing and being prepared for whatever may come our way. And ultimately, the simplest question is, 
Are you prepared for the return of Christ who is going to judge those who are ready and those who are not? And the primary way that all of us prepare is by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls and then entrusting ourselves to a faithful Redeemer who is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that we could think or ask in our everyday lives as we present our lives, our bodies as living sacrifices, knowing that that's our spiritual service of worship. Are you born again? If you're not, you place your faith in Christ. That's the tickets right there. And if you are born again, are you constantly preparing and staying prepared for however long it may be before he returns? Whatever calamities arise, earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars, these are just the beginning of the birth pains. And they're going to intensify, quicken over a period of time. Are you ready for that? Because we're commanded to be ready. Let's pray. Father, may we be wise. May we not be foolish. And God, as a result of your grace, salvation is available to all who will believe. And this parable that we read today is not talking about being saved. It's talking about being ready for the return of Christ. May we be diligent, hardworking, prepared people as we look forward to his return. Help us to cut away the fat and the flab and the junk that diverts our attention from the main thing. And we definitely, God, need your help in that. So we ask for it. And if there be those who are not ready, who need you to reveal Christ to them as their Savior, God, we pray you would do that now. and That they would confess their sins and ask Jesus to forgive their sins. And he is faithful to do that. Father, we thank you that you are faithful and that you are making us faithful. We trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. And ever, and all God's people said, Amen. If you want to hang out and talk, it's nice out there, it looks like today. We'll love you better out there.